1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from my fabulous friends. Hey everybody, it's Adrian, and if you're listening to this silky, silky, smooth voice, you know what it is. You got yourself another episode of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. Welcome back, one and all. Hello, friends. Hello, bad apples. Thank you so much for being here and listening to the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. As ever, my name is Adrian Gibbs, and I'm back. I'm back uh, specifically from the great state of Wisconsin. Uh, If you were listening to the last episode, which I'll give a quick shout out to last episode's guest, I had the absolute privilege of speaking with sex coach, sex educator, overall wonderful human being by the name of Portia Brown. We talked about pleasure, having a practice of pleasure, kind of a life surrounding things that feel good and leaning into those moments and taking care of yourself, looking after yourself and kind of unraveling a lot of the scripts that we have been handed surrounding pleasure. So that was such a great conversation. I'm so grateful for her. Thank you again, Portia, for being on the show. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, But if you were listening to that episode, you know that uh, I have left the world of fun employment. After being unemployed for over a month, I got a new job. They flew me out to the great state of Wisconsin in like my first week. So that's a thing, right? I, I, I don't know. It's been, it was bonkers, but it was actually a great experience. I really love my coworkers and the team. Uh, I got to meet them and interact with them. And that was absolutely awesome. There's a lot of things I want to talk about that were kind of like a lot of revelations, Mm, revelations, a lot of like revelations that kind of hit me in the days leading up to being back to work. That has like a lot to do with like what it was like being laid off and what it was like being unemployed and kind of the mind fuck that it is trying to get back into the workforce. And there's been a bunch of bad apples who reached out to me who were like, that was me. I, or I know what that was like, or that's just happened to me, or that happened to me last year, or that happened to me 10 years ago or whatever. So like, I've been really ruminating on that component. So I think I'm going to have a little bit of a life after layoff rant at the end of this episode, um, but I'm not going to go there right now. So stick around if you (laughs) care to listen to that. But Wisconsin was great. It was cold. Oh my God. Like May. And it was like a low of 35 at one point. Um, Y'all, I'm from Fort Lauderdale. Okay. It's like 90 degrees outside. Humid as fuck. It's like the devil's farting on you. And then I just flew into Wisconsin and I was so (laughs) cold. It was also like windy. I wasn't expecting it to be as kind of like a cold, windy scenario. A couple of the bad apples that reached out uh, in regards to Wisconsin, they're like, yeah, I know that that tracks, actually. That's just very Wisconsin. I visited the great city of uh, Green Bay. In fact, my work had nothing to do with the football team, but it was an overall great experience. I had uh, some really tasty food. By the way, we went out to eat dinner and we had went to like a steak house and someone ordered a baked potato. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's like a it's like a baked potato that you share. And I'm like, OK, yeah, where I come from, you don't share a potato. Like, this is my potato. I'm a big boy. I can eat a potato. This thing was probably the length of my forearm, maybe a little bit less. It was huge. <laughs> this is a huge potato. I, I always thought that was like an Idaho thing, but maybe that's a Wisconsin thing. I don't know. Wisconsin, do you claim frighteningly long potatoes? Let me know. Slide in my DMs if you're like, yeah, Wisconsin, we have fucking huge ass potatoes. Maybe you do. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) I don't have a really great segue uh, other than the fact that it's just good to be back. My vibe is different. There's I I feel lighter 
on this side of things, there's more stress when you start a new job because you have to completely redo your entire rhythm and your entire routine. Anyone who knows me knows I love my routine. Like I love kind of being able to turn my brain off and do things that are really comfortable and natural. I think I, I saw something and gosh, I can't accredit this person because I don't remember who I saw it. I think it was maybe on Instagram or TikTok. And what this person was saying, if your life is disciplined or you have a routine in place, then you don't have to think about it. So if you're in a, a rhythm at work and the work that you do, you can kind of just do it without having to think as far as like your everyday life. Like if your life is tidy, like a tidy desk, then you can actually fill that desk with chaos. And so this person was saying like, if you have like a routine and a rhythm and the things you do at work and the things that you build your life around are structured and regimented and you don't have to think about it, then it gives you the freedom to like go off and be creative. And it gives you the freedom to explore and tinker with ideas and mess around and be, and, you know, and, and, and try and fail and do all these things. And so I felt like I was in a really cool spot at my old job where I felt like I, I just knew what to expect every day. I had a good routine, I had a good rhythm. And like this incredibly disruptive thing really flipped everything on its head. And now, even though I'm back working, you have to completely start over because there's new processes, like new work. It's a totally new job, totally new people, totally different expectations. And so it almost feels like you have to slide things off of your plate and like deprioritize just to feel like you can focus on what you need to. And that, at least that's where, where I'm at right now. So I'm like frantically working to reestablish a sense of equilibrium. And so it's just very difficult. So anyway, all that to say, it's a good problem to have. I'm incredibly grateful. Listen, you know, it's bonkers when fucking indeed.com and like LinkedIn, the job search websites are laying off like hundreds of thousands of people or something crazy like that. It's brutal out there. So if you're out there and you've been laid off or it's happened to you or you just got a new job, like I'm going to talk about it later because I have a lot of thoughts, but it is fucking blockers out there. I know as a person listening to the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast, you're like, you know what I really want to hear on, the <laughs> on this post evangelical podcast? I want to hear about Adrian Gibbs and his fucking thoughts on being unemployed and working. Well, listen, it's my show. I can do what I want. Speaking of doing what I want, I had the absolute, that was a, now that's a good segue. That's what it is. The trick to finding a good segue is just to keep fucking talking Michael Scott style. And then eventually you'll find an entry point and you're like, oh, there we go. That's it. So fucking stuck the landing on that. Uh, speaking of doing what I want, I had the absolute privilege of having a guest that I have been wanting to have back for a while. This guest is a friend. It is my dear friend, Roberto Che Espinoza. And this episode was distinct. I think I was, as I mentioned, I was unemployed at the time of recording this episode. And I did not have the desire or the energy to let, I didn't want to do like a, another topic episode. I do a lot of topic episodes, which are very highly prepared and highly produced. And I have like a game plan and a ton of structure, or I'll bring in a guest and it's someone who I really have a focus on the conversation. You know, I want to approach it in a way that is very deliberate. I have like key things I want to talk to them about. I want to highlight some of their work. I want to ask them questions on their previous stuff. And so all of that, there's a ton of preparation. And uh, this actually was cool because Roberto Che reached out to me and he was like, hey, I heard it's the final season. If you are looking for a guest, I'd be thrilled to come on. And I got the, the great burden lifted off my shoulders. I just said, yeah, that sounds great. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> and he's like, we'll figure it out. And that's what this conversation is. To me, it is just kind of two friends just chatting it meanders and it wanders and like it stalls and picks up. I don't know. It just felt it was just good for me to have an episode like that where I could just chat with a friend and I got to kind of bring my walls down a little bit and be kind of candid. And it was just really great. So if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, I fucking want topics, Gibbs, give me topics. Then this episode is not for you. But if you're cool with just a really relaxed conversation between two friends, I think this is a good one. Um, as always with these, with these chats, right? These are just people talking about their lived experience within their framework and their context. Roberto Che is in a different place than you possibly. I'm in a different place than you possibly. So we're all in this kind of spectrum of belief and lack of belief and healing and, and 
undoing and anger and grief and all of these things. So if you're at a place where you can kind of join in on those conversations and kind of like just leave room to have all these different things, then come on, come along. If not, that's totally fine. I totally get it. Uh, you can skip to the end of the episode, right? <laughs> talk about life after a layoff and I talk about sip, smoke, read, or you can skip this episode altogether. You won't hurt my feelings. You will not hurt Roberto Chase. But if you stick around, I think you're going to absolutely enjoy it because I really, really enjoyed it. And I was actually getting kind of emotional at the end of it and you'll hear it. Oh, one thing I do want to mention, there was a little bit of some audio issues on my end. Roberto sounded great. It was totally my end. You'll hear my levels. My audio levels were kind of wonky. It was picking up a bunch of ambient noise. Producer Del Breezy was like, hey, it sounds not as good as you normally sound. So <laughs> that's another thing I want to, another lampshade I'd like to hang on this situation. The audio on my side is going to sound a little jankier than what you're used to. But once again, I think the conversation is absolutely great and it's absolutely worth, worth giving it a listen. So without any further ado, let's jump right in to my chat with Roberto Che Espinosa. <laughs> First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. My next guest is a friend of the show and a friend of mine. He is an author, podcaster, a theologian, and an activist. His second book, Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation, released in March of 2022. I am so excited to welcome back Dr. Roberto Che Espinoza. Hello, hello. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. It's so good to see you. It's been too long. Thank you. I was going to say we haven't had that roasted chicken yet. Classic. So we got to make that happen. And you're right. We haven't had our yeah. roasted chicken. Are you still in Nashville? Still in Nashville. I'm in LA right now because we just needed a break from everything that's happening in Tennessee. But yeah, still in Nashville. Still trying to plant seeds for another possible world. Still working with people to help them figure out what's next in their journey. You know, I... I hear from so many people who are deconstructing and I have a hard time using that word because I've studied the philosophy of deconstruction and there's always this hiccup for me when people say I'm deconstructing and I have to ask a few more questions. Well, what do you mean by that? But what I have started to do is the dismantling, the questioning, the realignment, that's all important work. But if we are all doing that work and we are not building the thing that we want to inhabit or embody, then what are we going to do? So I've kind of shifted my focus to trying to build another possible world, which is partly why I wrote that, that second book. I love that. I love that. We were talking and uh, just before we saw hit record. Uh, I, I let you know that this is the last season of DRCK and it was this sort of feeling of like, we got to get you back on. And I'm so glad you said yes. And I didn't really have, I, I usually plan these things pretty well, where I have a, a game plan, a topic and agenda that I want to cover. But I was like, you know what, let me just see what Roberto Che wants to talk about. And when you mentioned this idea of rebuilding things and the idea of ever becoming I thought that was so fascinating. So I am, this, this is new for me, uh, Roberto Che. I have no notes. I don't really have any notes. I don't have a game plan. This is just us kind of riffing. And I'm so, so grateful for it. When you think about the deconstruction space that you have found yourself in, that we both kind of find ourselves in, what were the, the little kind of nudges that made you go, you know, there's actually more to it, or there's more that it doesn't have to stop here. Like we can continue becoming. Well, I mean, first off, we are meaning-making people. This is why stories matter so much to so many of us. The return to story, the return to narrative, even my own return to the South, 
is about building, not about dismantling. I think it was something in me, something I needed something. Uh, I have felt so isolated in the academy. I felt so isolated and silenced in the church. I just was writing a narrative about how I couldn't find a church in my 20s that accepted me. And so I started attending the Episcopal Church because I could just be anonymous and I could still sort of be in awe of the mystery of Jesus. And now I find myself wanting to cook, just cook and then have people over for dinner. And that has become a sacred site of community for me. Mm. I'm just like, are we slowing down enough to think about what we want? Or are we too busy asking questions and throwing the baby out with the bathwater that we forget to tend to the little things? When I look back on kind of the last few years with this show specifically, as I kind of go into the last season, I really think about how important it was for me to have complete free reign, carte blanche, to tear down anything, to rage as hard as I wanted to. It was a, it was a, uh, what are those destruction rooms you can go to? You can like pay. They give you a hammer and some goggles. The rage room. A rage room. That was it. Yeah. Like the, the, this show could have been called the rage room because that, that's what it represented to me. Yeah. Uh, the opportunity to to break and mourn and, and ridicule and, and laugh at. And as I get to this particular season, this literal season and this season of my life, there is that question of like, okay, I feel like I've got it out of my system and so the question, not out of my system, but it's like, I feel like I've got a little bit of it out of my system. And so the question becomes, what now? Yeah, I mean, I resonate with that on lots of different levels because I waited so long to transition. And part of that was I didn't have a vision of a gender category that I wanted to embody. I don't identify as female, but I also don't identify as male, but I do identify with masculinity. I do love men, and I like the men who are in my life, but I'm not trying to be a man. And so for me, the deconstruction, my own sort of evolution theologically and ethically and relationally has been very parallel with my trans identity. And I think if we can just pay attention to the ever-evolving becoming that is us and bear in mind a vision for what we hope for, even though there's lots of despair, mm. maybe we will get somewhere. And so, I mean, my story is very much a story of becoming. I'm still becoming. And not that becoming leads to perfection, but becoming is about small measures of change that materialize on a fractal scale that can possibly bring hope and light in the midst of destruction. Man, I love that you said that. I've had you on the show in the past, and so a lot of people listening to this is because they listened and loved your last episode on the show. And you talked about your upbringing in a big way. But I, we did talk about this idea, in, for so many of us in the evangelical space, you were kind of expected to pause your emotional, spiritual, theological, and mental development at this sort of little capsule, right? right? And then you're never allowed to expand your view of God or the divine. You're never ex allowed to expand who is in and who is out, kind of the othering. And I think for a lot of us, when you go through a deconstruction, those roots don't go away. Right. I think we still, at least I can, I know I can tend to this, is to still allow myself to situate in a binary way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad to speak to you because your very lived experience is living proof that there is just so much more to this experience spiritually and just as people yeah. than that sort of binary black and white way of thinking that we were handed. Yeah, I mean... I don't know that I have any answers, but I do have hope that many of us will begin to plant seeds for the vision we want to embody. 
we don't have to know everything right now, but can we begin to plant seeds for another possible world? We are just about to head out of town and lead a retreat on imagination and another possible world. So I'm, I'm planting seeds with the same question. I want more of us to be planting those seeds. And then I want more of us to come together to talk about what is the vision that is emerging? What is bubbling up inside of us? I don't need to tell you, but we are so disconnected as a human family, so polarized. And we need to figure out how to suture togetherness, that fabric of togetherness, back again. Yeah. I guess I would love to have you talk more about when you, what you mean by when you talk about imagination. I love that you're doing a retreat on the imagination of what can be. I think that's so important. What was it about this idea of just letting your imagination run and letting yourself dream? What about that interests you? And if you, in your quiet moments, what do you envision? What do you imagine or hope for? Well, what led me is realizing that everyone around me has policed my imagination. School, higher education, graduate school, my teachers, the church, clergy, people in power, the government, they've all policed imagination out of me. I just think we need to return to practices of imagining the active work of imagining another possible world. Because what's happening right now in Tennessee, Florida, and Texas in particular, the draconian laws, the fascism is not only harming those in power and compromising those in power, but it's damning the underside of history. And I am included in that. Mm. And I've been very upfront around being deeply working class, living paycheck to paycheck. And we know there's enough to go around, but there are no practices of sharing wealth. And so I just started thinking and imagining what could we do if we reimagined the sharing economy? So I had a bunch of points on Delta and we talked to some friends and they've always wanted to go to Barcelona. I've never been to the continent of Europe. I mean, I've been to England, but never to the continent. And so I bought four tickets on Delta points and the four of us went to Barcelona and our friends got the hotel. That's the only way we can make it work because we can afford everything. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean when I'm thinking very pragmatically and materially about imagination. What happens when we imagine another possible world? Can we renew and revive the sharing economy? That's just one example. I mean, there's lots of examples out there. When you talk about imagination, it made me think of there's almost a deliberate pausing that has to happen that I think is not very accustomed in our culture of like, I constantly have to have seven screens in front of my face on all the time. My agenda and my to-do list is crammed full. And there's this book that I read called Essentialism, which is about the disciplined pursuit of less but better. And one of the things, the principles that the author, Greg McEwen said is like, we rarely ever have time to just sit and think. And whether it's thinking about what we want to do, whether it's thinking about what where we feel like our greatest contribution to the world can be found, or in this case, like where we can just sit and envision a better way of being, I feel like just the act of sitting and pausing can in and of itself be revolutionary. Yeah, the slowing down, the rooting into yourself, rooting into your body, are your feet planted on the ground? You know, I mean... My partner, who you know is a somatic expert and a dancer, I mean, I've learned all this from them. And they are really the reason why I felt so compelled to write this book on embodiment and becoming. And we need to return to being embodied. We, we are so fragmented by technology, by the machine world. I mean, it worries me. 
it worries me that we don't have community in the ways that they did 50 years ago. It worries me that we watch TV through a watch party, through a virtual lens instead of being together. (laughs) Now, I understand if there's distance, right? If you're in Florida and I'm in Tennessee and we're going to watch a show, I get that. But we're just no longer gathering together. Yeah. Why? What What is that about? Hmm. That's so true. It's it's crazy. I hadn't thought about the ways in which community is an act of embodiment. Because typically when you think of embodiment, you think of the self, but there is an extension of that, which is the community that we find ourselves a part of. Right. I would love to talk about the book and what inspired that book? What went into it? Can we go down that rabbit trail a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I should admit this, but I'm a big fan of THC gummies. I think that cannabis unlocks shit. And I knew that I was going to be writing about my abuse. I knew that I was going to be writing about being sexually abused. So I, I wrote most of that book with gummies on board over a year, of course. Because I wanted to get in to the nitty gritty of it. I say that and I share that and I disclose that because getting in to the trauma and the pain, the disenfranchisement of my own body required me psychologically and psychically to downshift. And I needed some help in downshifting because either I would overthink it or... I would write something and it wasn't resonating. And so cannabis really helped me get into what I needed to say. You know, it unlocks shit. I tell people that like cannabis unlocks shit. So do other plants. They just unlock shit. Yeah. But I wrote the book partially because I'm so concerned about us as a society. And I wanted to articulate that Like there are pieces of me that contribute to the brokenness of society because of my own trauma. We are an unhealthy ecosystem. We're an unhealthy body. And so what if I shared some of the most painful moments of my life? Could that help us all, if we read it, to begin to heal ourselves and then ultimately heal our body, our democratic body, our communal body. And so I wrote this book and I spilled the tea and I wrote about the abuse of my mother who's still living. And it felt important to tell the truth because part of that telling the truth set me free in my own healing. Mm. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you, what did your body, was there a response in your own physicality, in your own being, just in the act of releasing the book out into the world? Well, I was terrified to release the book, number one, (laughs) but I felt a measure of peace. I'm like, okay, it's out there and hopefully people will resonate. And I've heard from a lot of people who they say it's everything that they've needed. And so, I mean, it didn't make any bestseller lists or anything like that, which I'm not trying to That's not what I'm trying to do, which my publisher um, hates when I say things like that. I'm like, it's not about that. (laughs) Yeah, It's about healing and it's about getting people free. You can't put a dollar on that. Yeah. There's a a book that I read called Big Magic by Liz Gilbert. And she talks about creative living. And one thing she said that I thought was interesting is she said, like, don't create your work. Don't create your art because you think you're going to help me. Like, if you feel like you need it, then I'm going to already be engaged. So something like that, like make it for you, you know, and that authenticity and that you said, like telling the truth that becomes infectious. Right. So I love that you approached writing the book that way. I guess on this side of things, was there anything, any aha moments, any light bulb moments that you discovered after the book was closed? I mean, I could have kept writing, you know, just, it could have been 500 pages. (laughs) I could have shared more stories. I could have, yeah, I just could have done more. But at some point, you got to put the pen down. Yeah. I want to circle back to this one thing. You're talking about 
your transition taking, you said it, it took long, it took a long time for your transition overall. And you said one of those things is like, you're continuing to kind of discover yourself and you're continuing to grow and, and be, what are some ways that maybe in your belief system or, or what are some ways that you practically try and make room for your continual becoming? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it took a long time because I didn't have the social support. And now that I have the social support, I can engage in, in my transition in fuller ways. And that's part of making room for myself is having the right people around me and having community. Mm. You know, the academy, and I spent a long time in the academy as someone earning degrees, you know, it's competition. It's nothing but competition and comparison. And competition and comparison kills community. I'm super non-competitive and always have been. And that's how I make room for myself is I'm not trying to compete with myself because I see it in institutions and organizations. And I'm like, I'm not trying to be like that. Yeah. Competition. What did you say? Competition and something kills community. Competition and comparison kills community. That's so great. That's so great. I think when I look at DRCK, uh, I've heard you talk, we've talked about this a little bit before, the idea of like platform culture. Yeah. I think especially in kind of the, the deconstruction space, one of the things that I was kind of starting to feel is I was like, okay, I don't want to be like a, an ex-evangelical influencer. I don't really want to be like capitalizing. I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm capitalizing on the trauma right. of all these people, you know? And I think for me, one of the things that I was thinking about is that feeling of comparison, that feeling of competition, that feeling of like, okay, the longer that I kind of sit in this space, like I'm not actually helping as many people anymore. That I think maybe that's part of it is, is like, as I look at this final season, it's like, okay, I think I've like helped as many people as I'm right able to help in this way. Right. You know what I mean? And maybe it's time to reimagine. That's the word. I think that's where the freedom is, right? That's where the curiosity lies in imagination. That's where we can lean into other aspects of becoming by being curious and by being led by our curiosity. I, I love that. I almost find myself having more fun talking to people who are looking to start their own creative and endeavors mm. like whether they're in the deconstruction space or not like i almost have more fun talking to them about their own missions and so i think when i think about like okay like what's next you know there is that feeling of like okay how can i continue to make a contribution without necessarily being the person right in everyone's ears all the time right. <laughs> yeah. well maybe you can help me figure out what's next but i do want to continue to have conversation with people and figuring out the right medium to do that. Yeah, yeah. There is something exciting. And I kind of want to go down a little creative rabbit trail. There is something exciting about all the opportunity. I think there are so many mediums now that you can articulate an idea. And I think the audio podcast space is part of it. But like, there's just so many new things happening. And what I found is like, even though a lot of people may know of who you are and who I am in this little corner of the internet, <laughs> there are just, yeah. just myriads of other people who have never even heard of any of the things that we're doing. And so it just shows there's just kind of a lot of cool opportunity to continue creating. If anything, it just encourages me to want to continue creating in some form or fashion. Cool. Cool. I listened to you on a, uh, a podcast. Shout out to uh, the Holy Heretics podcast. But the host is asking you about some practices. And you talked about the art of the siesta and how rest has been absolutely essential. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I want to dig into that. Yeah, the siesta has changed my life. When I'm stressed, I take a siesta. Sometimes I take two siestas. And I don't always fall asleep, but it's a chance for me to not be on my screen, to not be on a computer, to not be taking in information. I'm a five on the Enneagram, so I love information. 
The siesta is a chance for me, again, to downshift and just rest. I'm a big believer in the nap ministry and that rest is resistance. We live in a world that forces us to have a chronic sense of urgency and go from one thing to the next without any breaks. And I just think that's bad for our brains and bad for our bodies. I build my days as spacious as I can. And I find that I get more done when I do that and when I take a siesta than when I am booked back to back. Isn't it crazy how like one, I don't know, how long is a siesta for you? 30 minutes? Roughly an hour. I mean, but it could be 30 minutes, right? Like if I'm in between things. It's nuts how like all it takes is 30 minutes to an hour and you have multiple hours more of juice in the tank. I was talking to someone about they're starting a show. And one of the things I'm grateful for is I'm glad that this particular show was only two episodes a month. I deliberately was like, I don't want to like try and overstretch myself in the beginning because it's only going to get harder right? <laughs> as, as the time goes on and then you, and you run out of steam and you don't want to do it. And I, we were talking to our friend Blake over at Exvangelical and he said he was like cranking out like multiple episodes a week or something. And he's like, it just was untenable um, in the format that he had it. You know what I mean? And he's like, I had to like take, I think he said he had to take like months away just to kind of recuperate from kind of just how hard it was. And so I feel like as creators, we can let our enthusiasm and the expectation of what a successful quote unquote creator should look like. Right. And you, in your mind, you picture a podcast with, 700 episodes and a YouTube channel with 700 videos. And so you think that what is expected of you is this high, high, high level of output. And I think that's probably just a part of the culture, like you said. Oh, it's totally driven by capitalism and white supremacy. And both of those consolidate their power structures to accelerate each other. And it's bad. It's bad for us. In the same way that car pollution is bad for the ozone, Capitalism and white supremacy and the chronic sense of urgency is as bad as car pollution. Hmm. I'm, I'm starting to notice like the act of pausing and rest and like the nap ministry says, rest as resistance and the act of siesta and kind of going against the grain and imagining like there is this, that is a very, uh, what feels like a very revolutionary way of kind of existing in the world, especially when it's like, we are taught, you need to be in front of eyeballs. Like you need to have clicks and you need to be in people's ear holes and in front of people's eyeballs. And so you don't have time to stop and pause and think and, and imagine if you could go back and talk to a younger Roberto Che about this work that you're doing, would you change anything or give yourself any advice? Yeah, don't don't compromise yourself by trying to keep up with the Joneses. I, I've never tried to have a platform, but I kept accumulating followers. There are some people who are trying to have a platform who then are successful at having a platform. And I think I would just tell myself, follow your gut. Your intuition is correct. If you get a platform, fine, steward it well. And I'm just trying to be faithful. I'm trying to turn my commu- turn my platform into a community. What are some of the ways that you try and foster community via your platform? Some of this is more emerging work, but I've developed some contacts around the United States who are really jazzed about activist theology. And we're trying to create community in different parts of the United States to help connect the dots for people. And just last night, we had a like pop-up conversation, and Jeff Charlotte joined us, who wrote about the family, the conservative political group that funds the National Prayer National Day of Prayer or National Prayer Breakfast, one of those. But basically, he exposed how white Christian supremacy is entangled in our federal government. 
Jeff Charlotte joined us. Father Nathan Monk joined us, who's a former priest of a Russian Orthodox church. You know, we just talked about what's not being reported by the news, that queer and trans people are in need, basic needs. Hmm. And so I've really become impassioned to get the word out around mutual aid. And so that's how I've been building community of late. And I feel better when scrappy projects get together to have a meaningful conversation around meeting people's basic needs. I feel much better about that than, than this other shit. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about mutual aid. You started this sort of mutual aid fund and and project to support trans folks and queer folks out there in Tennessee. Can can we talk about that? I think this is super important. Well, yeah. I mean, after the anti-trans legislation was introduced and then was rushed through committees and then passed, I started hearing from folks who were isolating, who were sheltering in place, who were basically paralyzed by fear to leave their homes, many of them in rural Tennessee, uh, many of them without a lot of community or if any at all. And folks were just expressing need. And, you know, some people, they wanted to leave, so they needed money to leave. Other people just needed money for rent and medicine and food. And I feel really passionate that people should have a home and food. Having grown up poor and food insecure, it's the 21st century. We shouldn't be struggling with those things. This is a radical idea. Right. I know. I know. Very radical. But I, you know, I reached out to my friends um, and asked them to support this work. And I first thought that I would launch a mobile food bank. But what people were really needed was cash. I just talked with some uh, group in Memphis who does mutual aid in Memphis. So we're hoping to fundraise around mutual aid, then give to these organizations and also to individuals, but really give to these organizations who are building community solidarity in Memphis and Nashville and Knoxville and the surrounding areas. But yeah, I feel really committed to helping all of us be okay. I think that's so important. I'm going to make sure that we do everything I can we can on our end to kind of continue to plug that. What has the response been when you kind of put this out there and, and kind of began this initiative? Well, it's a crazy idea, number one. But listen, we don't change the world without being a little bit insane. <laughs> There's been a lot of response and people have given small amounts, $10 and large amounts. It takes everything in between, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful in the next few weeks, once we get through the retreat and everything that we can make a donation to one of these organizations. I don't know if you're, if people are listening and they want to check it out, they want to give, you can just go to activisttheology.com forward slash give and remember, activist and theology share a T. So just one T in that. It's a mashup. $10 goes a long way. And we're participating in clothing swaps. That's also a part of mutual aid. I'm cooking for people, which is also part of mutual aid to make sure people have food. I can think and cook for the revolution. That's what I can do. I love it. I love it. I, I, I love that idea of like... Anything that a person can bring to the table is 100% important to bring to the table. Right. I I feel like, um, and I think you've talked about this, historically, if there is one thing that the conservative evangelical national, what the extreme right and the conservative right does well, is they are good at building community. As toxic and harmful and dangerous as it can be in its forms. And I think historically, like if you look at so many folks on the left, community hasn't been something that we've been good at. Right. You know, so doing things like these are like real, tangible, actionable ways to try and do something that's more than talk. Yeah. Che Guevara. uh, I take my middle name after Ernesto Che Guevara. But Che Guevara said, it's time to stop talking and start doing. So we can spend a long time talking about change. But really, 
it requires us to start doing the thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would love to know, you released a book last year about the liberation and becoming, you're continuing to become. You talked about things like rest. What are other like really practical practices, experiences? Are there things that you are doing that maybe provide a sense of solidarity and embodiment? Like what are some things that you do to kind of get yourself through this crazy time that we're living in? I feel like a lot of people are asking the same thing. Mm. Well, I try to eat breakfast every day, which doesn't always pan out, but I try to remember to eat breakfast and hydrate. I mean, it, it's really basic, but those two things, because one, I need to take my morning medicine. So I need to eat breakfast for that. And two, water does wonders for us. You know, like hydration is vital. Do you have one of those big gallons? Do you have one of those big jugs? No, I just, I just drink out of a mason jar. But when you're thinking about it, you just go for it. That's good. That's what you got to do. But other than that, I just try to spend time with people and remember that we can get through this if we are committed to suturing our togetherness. Hmm. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious as someone who I, I hate cooking. I hate it. I feel like I'm not good at it. I feel like I'm fucking up every time. I feel like I'm like constantly washing my hands. My hands feel gross because I'm touching meat, whatever. What is it about that experience that is so, I don't know, holy to you? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's cathartic. It does feel holy. It's also in part imagining like tonight I'm making, I've got beans on the stove right now, right now. I'm going to cook some rice. I'm going to do some pan-seared cilantro lime shrimp. Oh, man. I don't know. It just feels it feels cathartic to me. I, I don't know. And we have to eat. That's true. <laughs> you got to do it. You might as well make it enjoyable, right? Yeah. Might, might as well lean in. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. Roberto Che, what else is coming up? Is there anything you can plug? Anything you have going on? Anything that the folks at home can... They want to connect with you or, or check out your, your next project. What do you got going on? So the next book is on belonging and freedom. I'm working on it right now. And we're about to launch an app to do some education around mutual aid and build community. You can check that out. You can find that at atporch.com. I'm writing on Substack, so I'd love for folks to join my Substack, and you can find that at ourcollectivebecoming.com, and be on the lookout for a project to emerge at some point in the form of maybe audio and video. Oh, man. You're not busy at all. You don't have enough stuff going on, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're gonna help me. You're gonna help me figure this out, Adrian. Let's do it. I love that idea, Roberto Che. Thank you for this. This has just been a pleasure. I I appreciate you letting me show up really unprepared. <laughs> I was like, I just want to talk to you. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like uh, you've just been so important to me. I don't think anyone listening to this show, maybe some people, know just how important you are to me and how much of a friend you have been to me over the past year. You have just done so much for me. And I'm getting kind of choked up as I think about it, but I think you really do practice not what you preach, but what you write and what you say. Yes, you have been very good to me as a person. And so I appreciate you. I love you a lot. Thank you. Well, I love you and I care about what you're doing. And I hope that this is not the last time that we're talking. And I hope that one day we'll get to have that roasted chicken and greens. I like it. It needs to happen. Soon. <laughs> Thanks for this. Thank you. <sighs> that was that. It was a good talk. I found myself getting emotional because I feel like when you talk with people who have kind of been there for you in a lot of big ways, Dr. Roberto was, was really a great friend during all the changes with the show. Just an absolutely supportive presence. So I'm just so grateful for him just being there for me. And uh, anyway, thank you, Roberto Che. I, I appreciate you and I love you a lot. So um, yes, we're going to drop links in the show notes to 
the mutual aid funds that he was referring to, be sure to support if you are able to or give it a share. That's free. So yeah, it was great. We were talking about transformation and growth. We were talking about rest. We were talking about kind of finding this third way of existing in the world. We're talking about practices that you lean into to kind of embrace this thing that we're all going through, this shared experience. So it was great. I'm so grateful for it. Thank you, Dr. Roberto Che Espinoza. You're the best. Well, you know, I, I wanted to talk about this. I wanted to talk a little bit about this whole thing with work and namely because like I had this really interesting experience when I got laid off or when you're looking for a new job, it is so daunting. Don't get me started in all the ways it's daunting. Like, first of all, you have to send out, what do they say? You have to send out like 80 applications, just Hail Mary applications in order to get one offer. Like that's the, the exchange rate or whatever. Also, a lot of these job applications that people are applying for. So if you're on the job market right now and you're like putting in, like throwing your hooks in the water to try and get a new job, a lot of these job listings are fake. They're not even real. These job listings are fake because for, for a myriad of reasons, one, hiring managers want their team to feel like they are more help is on the way. Like, oh, don't worry, we have these recs open to get new people, more help is on the way so that they feel like they have the morale to keep working, even though they're spread too thin, when in reality, they are not hiring. You know, there is no help coming. And the second thing, a lot of companies, they like to keep all these recs out so that a person can go in and is like, oh man, they're looking for a, a change director. Oh, they're looking for a customer success, da, 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 to look like the company is growing, like it's booming. But in actuality, it's not. So that's the first thing. Like, don't get me fucking started on how absolutely frustrating that is. And the fact that like, there's no salaries listed in the thing. And so you have to go to this whole conversation and then they ask you like what your salary range is and you tell them kind of what you're hoping for. And then all of a sudden they just ghost you. Don't get me started. But I think the, the biggest thing, the, the two biggest things that I had to deal with in looking for a new job, which by the way, another sidebar, get a new job every three years. All right. I like stayed at my job for like six years under like the guise of like loyalty, like really drinking the Kool-Aid. Like if you listened to the early, early days of the show, like I was like a huge fan of my company. I was just so grateful to be there. And you just, so like that sort of hype train and it was a good place to work. But like that sort of loyalty and hype train, like it really just gets whack. What I'm trying to say is don't be afraid to change jobs for more money. Just don't be afraid to do that. And don't let anyone guilt trip you into doing that. Take care of yourself. Consider yourself a free agent, right? You're here to deliver your best work to whichever organization you're a part of. And then you're completely free to find more compensation and more opportunities to produce even better work. So just leave your job. <laughs> Adrian from DRCK says, leave your job. Two things that I really experienced. One was the daunting, daunting, terrifying feeling that is commonly referred to as imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is something that I've experienced. I haven't experienced it a ton, but getting into the job hunt, I was feeling it in spades. If you're like me, like the idea of imposter syndrome is this feeling of like, I am not qualified to do this. There is no way that I'm going to win out over the sea of candidates who all graduated from great colleges. Like I went to community college and, you know, like a, like a two-year community college and then a two-year state school. Like I don't have any good pedigree. Like I didn't go to school for any of these careers that I'm applying for. Like no connections, you know, it, it is very easy to spiral into this feeling of like, I, I don't have anything going for me. Like I really don't. And so I think imposter syndrome can really fuck with you because you feel like you don't have anything to offer. You're underqualified and you will be found out. I think that's the thing is this feeling like I'm going to get found out at any fucking moment. And that starts in the interview process. And it honestly kind of carries on at the new job. Like I, I still feel imposter syndrome right now. I heard this podcast and this person was talking about what imposter syndrome is. I listened to a podcast. Uh, the podcast was called Imposters Podcast, which is kind of perfect. The host interviewed someone named Jay Shetty. They were talking about imposter syndrome. And Jay said this, and I thought it was really interesting. He said, imposter syndrome is when your level of challenge is higher than your level of skill. That's it. It's just the, your own intuition telling you that the level of the challenge is just higher than your level of skill. And that's all there is to it. 
And so if you're in a situation where your level of skill is higher than your level of challenge, then guess what? You're probably fucking bored. I've been there where you feel like this is too, it's not challenging. It's not interesting. It's not like there is no fire in my gut right now. Like I don't care about this. You feel disengaged. You feel bored. If the challenge is significantly higher than your skill, then you feel imposter syndrome. And if you can find that balance where the challenge is equal to your skill, that is where flow comes in. It's like if you've ever played music and there's something kind of tricky and you're working on it, you can figure it out, but it's just tricky. Or if you are a writer and like you're trying to get like this manuscript going and eventually something happens where the level of challenge is perfectly aligned with your level of skill. And guess what? You like forget to eat. You like forget to sleep. You're like, oh shit, it's two in the morning. And I think that's kind of where some like the magic happens is when you're in flow. But that, that imposter syndrome. And what Jace Shetty said that was so interesting is he said, I hope I never stop feeling imposter syndrome because it means that there's always more challenge for me. That like there's always another place for my ability to get to. And I really like that. I really like that idea. It reminds me of uh, this reel I saw with Brene Brown. And Brene Brown was talking about confidence. And it was really closely linked to this sort of imposter syndrome conversation. And Brene Brown said, confidence comes from competence. So if you lack confidence in certain things, it's, it's probably because you either are not competent at that particular thing, or you forget just how competent you are. You know, you're like, I, I, I can't do it. I can't do that. And sometimes you need to like remind yourself like, no, you're fucking good at this. Like you're good at this thing that you do. There's a thing that you do that no one else can do exactly the way you do. And you're good at it. Or if you're being honest with yourself, sometimes you lack confidence because you're not good at it yet. You're just not there yet. It's like I was getting into jujitsu. I, I fucking suck at jujitsu. I'm terrible. I think of that movie Avatar where like she keeps making fun of Jake Sully and she's like, you're like a baby. You're like a baby. That's what I feel like. I am like a baby. But it's like a lack of confidence because I'm just not good at it. One thing that I think Brene Brown said that was really interesting. If you do not have competence yet, that's okay. Just go with courage for now. Just go with courage. If you don't have confidence, then gain competence. And if you don't have competence, just try and muster the courage to start, to put yourself out there and to learn. And so that's kind of where I'm at right now is like, I'm in this new job. It's a role that's a stretch for me. And, and I can tell. They say like, if you're the, the most knowledgeable person in the room, you're, then you're in the wrong room if the goal is to grow. And to be clear, I am by far, I am not at all the most knowledgeable person in the room. It was very apparent the entire time I was away that I was like, oh, these people are all brilliant. I'm the, the back of the class for sure. But it's that feeling. I'm like, okay with that. Like, I'm okay with that challenge. I'm okay that feeling like I am having to, to play catch up. I'm okay with that. So I just wanted to share that because I'm hoping that maybe if you're in a similar situation where like you're about to step into this thing and you're like, I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. Or you're like, I am not even remotely prepared for this. Um, I just want to tell you like, A, you're probably more competent than you think you are. Or B, if you're not competent, then just have courage right now and just go for it. Put yourself out there. And I think the second thing that was really interesting to me in the job hunt was the idea of salary negotiations. Is it just me or are church kids afraid of talking about money? I have never been good at saying this is the objective financial value that I bring to the table. <laughs> I'm bad at it. I'm terrible at saying like, this is how much money I feel that I am worth. So I had no idea what to do when it came to salary negotiations. So as many of us millennials and, and young folk, youths do is I ran to TikTok and Instagram. I found three handles that I'd like to plug that did a really good job at like talking about salary negotiations in a way that I feel is realistic, informed, and like kind of gets you stoked to do it. One was an Instagram handle called Jerry J.H. Lee. Another handle is a content creator named Sho Dewan. Um, his handle is WorkHap, W-O-R-K-H-A-P, shout out to show. And then the one that was actually my, my favorite of the bunch is Sam DeMoss or Sam DeMaze. And her handle is a power mood, A-P-O-W-E-R-M-O-O-D. And the way that she like articulates salary negotiation conversations was like, oh, it's just so good. She's such a good communicator. So I tried to like steal that energy when it came to my own interview process. But um, yeah, with salary negotiations, I would say be prepared. Never be the first person to say the number if you can help it. 
and then just like act like I'm going to talk about this later. Wait until your stock is at the highest when you have had the most opportunity to really fucking sell how amazing you are. And then at the very, very end, then you can talk about money. But like, don't even act like it's not, act like it's not even worth talking about until every single person that you need to talk to has got a chance to meet you, like you, buy into your skills, do all that stuff. That's my tip. That's what I'd say. There are two books that I would suggest, and this is going to segue right into Sip Smoke Read. There's two books that I, uh, actually, there's a bunch of books. The books that have really been, that were really helpful for me, and I was talking to someone about this, one of the bad apples. The books that are really helpful was Atomic Habits, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less But Better, So Good They Can't Ignore You. There's a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins, and there's a book called The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. Those books all were like really helpful to me. I've never been a self-help person at all. But there was something, it was the traumatic experience of being laid off with two kids, you know, have like a family and a mortgage, like that experience, it just kind of like rattled me and like my way of coping was reading. So I read those books. I read a lot of those books. So if any of those books interest you, definitely give them a read. I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. Well, speaking of books, guys, gals, and pals, I think it is time for the final segment of the night. You know it, I know it, you know what it is. I like to call Sip, Smoke, Read. Sip, Smoke, Sip, Smoke, Read. Ay. So you know we read that shit. Ay. Shit. Only sip the finest party lit. On my couch and I be So you think and listen to these idiots. But here you keep on listening. And here you are, so listen. Read your pain corner to the latest book. Right, nice bitch. Browse over, watch a show, just take a look. Probably cartoons. They call me Little Fishy for my hooks. Sound now loud. you gotta sip. Smoke, sip, smoke, <sighs> well, all this talk of imposter syndrome and salary negotiations and work and layoffs and jobs, I really needed a drink. And so when I went to Wisconsin, I decided to participate in, and I had a drink. Those of you know, I don't really drink as much anymore. It's, it's not any real reason other than I just don't like waking up with headaches. You know, I just don't like waking up with headaches and don't like waking up dehydrated. But I was like, you know what? When in Rome. So I went to this steakhouse I was telling you all about. And one of the people, one of the wonderful people from the company I'm working with, they're like, oh, you should get an old fashioned. Have you ever had an old fashioned before? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've been around. I've watched Mad Men. And I said, well, it's a little different. It's, you haven't had a Wisconsin old fashioned, which by the way, they say like Wisconsin, Wisconsin. The accent with Wisconsin, with Wisconsin, is that your mouth gets flat, like your mouth gets a little flat. So I didn't realize this. So a Wisconsin Old Fashioned, they asked me right out the gate, they're like, all right, so if you want a Wisconsin Old Fashioned, do you want it sour or sweet? I'm like, that is already very different than any Old Fashioned I've ever experienced. And then they asked me if I wanted it with bubbles or something. <laughs> Essentially, what they did was typically it's made with rye, but then this one was made with either bourbon or brandy, depending on how sweet of a cocktail you want. And then they mix it with like soda, like a citrus lemon lime soda. So it was an old fashioned, but I had like a sour old fashioned soda. It was very interesting, but honestly, it was pretty tasty. I actually don't know if I love old fashions because I don't love... I don't know. Like, I don't like love like sweet liquor, like just a straight up sweet liquor. And with the cherry, it can get, it can feel a little sweet, but when it's like sour and like kind of bubbly, <laughs> I kind of like, I kind of loved it. I might need to learn how to make it at home. So I had a Wisconsin old fashioned. There are a couple books that one I am currently in. I told you I'm finishing up the first 90 days. It's a book for like when you start at a new job, kind of ways to really make a big impact in the first three months. It's totally boring. <laughs> it's such a boring book. But I was like reading it because I was trying to like have this disciplined knowledge transfer, like trying to download this knowledge into my brain before I started this new job. Well, I'm in the new job and now I'm just trying to wrap up the book because I'm like uh, sunken cost bias. I've like invested this much of my life into this book. Uh, the book that I stopped reading to read this one, it's a book called Zodiac Academy. Zodiac Academy, the best I can kind of equate it to is Harry Potter for grownups, kind of. It's not as young, it's not as YA, like young adult book as Harry Potter was, but it has a lot of the similar kind of tropes, but I kind of like it. 
I kind of like it. Zodiac Academy. Um, and as far as I know, the author is not a turf. So that's a thing. That's great, right? Check out Zodiac Academy. And then a book that is on deck that Alyssa is reading and she seems to really enjoy. And therefore, it is on my radar. I got my sights set on it. Is a book called A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness. Can y'all tell I'm in kind of like a fantasy kick right now? So yeah, A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness. So that's the, the next book that I'm going to be lining up. As far as shows, kind of the, the standard, right? So Succession, watching Succession, that's really, really good. The Good Place, I'm watching The Good Place. Ted Lasso. And then I recently started rewatching New Girl. I really like New Girl. There is just something about the Schmidt and Nick Miller humor that was just mm, chef's kiss. So, so good. I think that's it, everyone. I think I've did it. All right. So I think I think I've did it. I think I did it. I went on my rant about working and dealing with the capitalist hellscape that it is trying to find a job in this country. And then I did Sysmo Creed. I think we did it. Everyone, thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the show, go to dirtyrottenchurchkids.com in this final season. You can join the Patreon to get some behind the scenes content. You can pick up some merch while it's still available. You can follow me on the socials, even though, to be clear, I don't really use social media anymore because my mental health cannot tolerate it. But I still love the podcast. So here we are. Everyone, thank you for this. Every episode I record, I try and be cognizant of how special it is and how special this show is, how important this thing has been to me um, and continues to be. And so, yeah, if you're listening, thank you for listening. A lot of you have been listening since day one. I will never forget that. And, and words cannot describe just how appreciative I am. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I will catch y'all on the next episode. Keep up the dirty work, everyone. And remember, it's all gonna be okay. Big huge shout out to Roberto Che for this wonderful conversation. I am so grateful to be your friend and to have you on the show for this final season. As you heard, take the time to rest recuperate, and dream about the better world we can create. When I do the chicken dance, I do it a little differently. Instead of doing claps, I like to do a peck. It's more realistic. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.